your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. The triangle set to the top of the pattern. Now Spielman in motion to the near side. Rolling right is McCaffrey. Throws it toward the end zone. Wide open is Noah. Makes a catch. And it is a touchdown. Nebraska. Now let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Josh Hilkeman. Thank you. Welcome to our Thursday edition. Another day, another conference announcing what they're planning on doing for college football. Welcome to our Thursday night show here on Sports Alley. Today it was the SEC. Yesterday we heard from the ACC that they were going to go to a 10-game conference schedule plus one non-conference game. The ACC was hoping to protect some longtime rivalries with teams in the SEC. For instance, Florida State would have been able to hang on to their game with Florida. Clemson could have held on to their matchup with South Carolina. Georgia Tech could have played Georgia. So that's what the ACC did yesterday. They didn't announce their games. They did say they would start the week of September the 7th was when they would get their season underway, maybe some games during the week, and then obviously the first full Saturday of the 12th of September. Well, the SEC today came out and a little surprised by this, to be honest with you. They're going to go with 10 games conference only so the sec goes from playing eight conference games to 10 they're going to add two conference opponents but the kicker josh that really surprised me was not starting until september the 26th so they're going to hold off until the last week of september to start their 10 game conference schedule they believe that um, they need a little bit more time to get more data accumulated and roll with this that surprised me. Don't know about you, but it surprised me they're going to hold off that long. It, it is really surprising. And I don't, I mean, I was surprised, first of all, that they decided to go conference only and didn't, you know, try to protect some of those ACC, you know, non-conference crossovers that have been going on for so long. But yeah, I, and, you know, we talked about this earlier in the week that the, the decision by the NCAA to allow teams to, you know, start playing that last week of August kind of gave teams flexibility either to start early if they wanted or to start late or, you know, give teams and conferences. But the SEC choosing to start that late is a little bit surprising because then you don't really have much flexibility. Although I guess, you know, who knows what the postseason slash bowl season is going to look like anyway, if there's going to be one at all. So, you know, maybe they're thinking that they, you know, they all play in, pretty much warm weather states for the most part. So maybe they're thinking they can just play into January or February or Martin, you know, I don't know. So I guess there's a lot of different aspects to it that I'm not thinking of. And so maybe they think this is their best bet. And, you know, we had heard uh, a week or two ago that the PAC 12 was considering pushing all the way back into the end of September and maybe even into October to start their season. And I would, that did, that made sense to me for the, Pac-12 to do that. It kind of seemed like something that made sense for them, but to see the SEC do what they did, came out with today, it was it was a little bit surprising. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Okay, so that, that came out mid-afternoon today. Wake up this morning, get that first cup of coffee. Teddy Greenstein, who joins us every Thursday here on the program, had a column on the Chicago Tribune. He had details quoting unidentified sources within the Big Ten that the Big Ten is, yes, targeting September the 5th. Week one to start their season, but build in three to four bye weeks within the schedule to allow teams, if they have a bad week with positive tests, to quarantine 
collect themselves and then get ready to go with a week off in there. That makes a heck of a lot of sense to me uh, that they are close to, to releasing a schedule, but it's not completely done yet. Um, and then we heard earlier that, Oak, that the Big 12 was, was going to try to start and play some week zero games at the end of August. So you got all these conferences doing a little bit different things. But Teddy had the, the story early for all the readers in Chicago and then the online version saying that he's being told 10 conference games with the start of September the 5th. Makes a lot of sense to me. Right. And that's what I was going to say is that, you know, it's not official yet from the Big Ten. But if Teddy is right and that's what they end up doing, it it, it makes a whole lot of sense because you, you don't back yourself into a corner, especially like I was talking about earlier, SEC, Pac-12, mostly warm weather schools, Big Ten's not. So if you want, you know, you give yourself some flexibility moving the schedule around with building in those bye weeks and starting a little bit earlier, at least starting when this season was supposed to start anyway with non-conference. So I... I'm 100% with you. I It makes sense to me to basically start the season when you were supposed to start as long as everything, you know, is, is good to go for the schools that are, you know, where they're ta- the games are taking place. And once you get going, you kind of take it week by week and see what happens. And if you need to move the schedule around, just like we've seen with Major League Baseball, obviously yeah. they're playing every single day, but they've had to do a little bit of shuffling with the schedule and they really don't have a lot of leeway with what they've done. They've packed in those 60 games with very, very little uh, wiggle room. Whereas if, you know, the Big Ten, if they start September 5th and they play 10 games and they have three or four bye weeks, that allows you quite a bit of room to maneuver. And, you know, if a team has a, a breakout, then then you can, you know, move some things around. So, I, yeah, I 100% agree. It makes a lot of sense to start as early as you can and then build in some uh, a little bit of flexibility into that schedule. We're a week into the expanded workouts with the players. It started last Friday, so we're now seven days into that. A week from tomorrow would be the first day of the fall camp, provided you're starting on September the 5th. And even the NCAA Oversight Committee today said, even if your season doesn't start on September the 5th, you can go ahead and start your fall camps Hmm. next Friday. So fall camps, regardless, are going to be a go starting August the 7th. Lincoln Journal Star has up a story with with quotes from Athletic Director Bill Moose, who says, waiting for this football schedule has been very uncomfortable for Nebraska and the state. He said, quote, Nebraska wants and needs football, and I want to deliver it to them. So Bill Moose, who's been pretty steadfast on this, we want to try to get as many games in as we possibly can. He also went on and gave the Journal Star some quotes saying, we still think we can get a sizable crowd inside a Memorial Stadium for games. So he's not... He's not going the Ohio State or the Illinois route that we've talked about the last couple of nights about capping it at 20% or capping it at 10,000 fans. He still wants to go big as long as he can get the okay from the health experts. Yeah, and I think that's the news from those quotes that you talked about. It's, you know, obviously he's he wants to play games and he's going to do everything he can to have those games happen. But to say, and, you know, a lot of, like you said, a lot of teams have already come out and said, well, we're either not going to have any fans or it's going to be very, very few fans. I, you know, Bill Moose has made it pretty clear that he wants to have as many fans as the, you know, the health experts will allow. And, you know, he said that, he, you know, they're going to follow all the regulations of local officials and and do what they can. But he, you know, he, he, it seems like he's kind of waiting till the last possible moment, or at least he will wait till the last possible moment to try to make those decisions. And uh, even though that's going to be a big headache for 
ticketing and for you know working those games and you know getting people into those games it, it's going to be a headache for all of that but i think that obviously fans are going to appreciate it if they can do it safely and they can get a big crowd in there for for games on saturdays because that's going to be it's going to be like he, you said at the very beginning it, you know nebraska needs this they want football and they they really need it to get a shot in the arm and um yeah i would obviously we're all hoping for the best and it would be amazing to see at least a mostly full memorial stadium for any whoever the opponent is it doesn't matter at this point who the huskers are playing game one but that would just be amazing to be able to uh have a mostly full crowd or maybe even at capacity if if that's allowed so yeah that's great news bill moose was a part of a conference call today within the conference where they discussed a lot of these issues they discussed the schedule i gotta believe nebraska has seen some sort of outline of what their schedule is going to look like but nothing official, nothing from the league. And obviously Nebraska can't do it until they get the official go-ahead from the Big Ten Conference. And who knows, Josh, they may be having some conversations with their television partners going, okay, if we give these six teams this week off, do we have enough games and good games for you to fill your TV windows on September the 19th or October the 12th, whatever the date may be? That may be the final holdup is making sure the TV partners go, yep, that looks good, yep, that looks good too, and, and that looks good and i will say this if if the big 10 can pull this off and get games on the 5th of september they're going to have the eyes of the entire nation on them because we know the pac-12 isn't starting then we know the sec isn't starting then and we know the acc is not starting september the 5th right exactly that's what i was just going to say is that there's so many so many moving pieces to this with the tv scheduling because each conference has just now with the SEC and the ACC yesterday, finally you kind of know what all the conferences' plans are for what they're going to do with the season. And that's there hardly is even any schedule out yet. The ACC kind of had a partial <laughs> one, but not with, with any dates, like any hard yeah. dates. So you're going to have, have so many moving pieces with – uh, once teams at, or once conferences actually come out with a schedule with dates and times, and that probably won't happen until all the behind the scenes TV stuff is done anyway. But once all that's out there, then you're going to deal with moving the schedule around anyway. So that's going to be probably throughout whatever this season looks like. It's probably going to be a moving, moving target anyway, but that's, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what that first week, you know, whether it's the last week of August or like you said, if the Big Ten starts that first weekend of September, Labor Day weekend, if, you know, how many games there actually are on TV. And it could be very well be very Big Ten heavy um, the first weekend there. So, yeah, that it, it'll be interesting to see how that TV schedule is filled out. Game day may be forced to go to a Big Ten school, right? I mean, that may have been oh, yeah. the only options that they have for oh, that thing yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, that ACC thing reminded me of the NFL where the season ends and they go, okay, Chiefs, you're playing these teams and these teams. These guys you get at home, these guys you get in the row. But they don't give you dates until like April. That's the same thing the ACC did yesterday with that grid. No dates, no order. Just these are the teams you will be playing uh, in the next three months. But hopefully we'll get something solid from them. Hopefully we, for all of us, we get something solid from the Big Ten sooner than later. We got some big news here at the Husker Sports Network. For years, you've heard us talk about our phone number of 866-487-HUSKER1. Um, we're changing that, and we're changing it for a couple of different reasons. One, we're changing to a number that has the capability for you either to call and be on the air with us and talk and give us your thoughts and opinions, or text us your thoughts or opinions 
about a particular taco. So we're going to be pounding you with this phone number over and over and over again for the coming weeks until you get it memorized or plugged into your phone, put into your favorites. But it is area code 531, which is a new area code for the state of Nebraska, by the way. So 531 500 531-500-4686. And again, you can call or text that number to get your messaging uh, over to us to talk about on the air. So this will this will uh, encompass Sports Nightly. It'll encompass Big Red Reaction. So huge news. And we're excited about this, Josh, because it's going to be able to – one more way for people to get to us without having to maybe hold the phone to their ear and wait on hold for us to get it is send us a text with their instant thoughts about a certain topic. Yeah, it's really cool because, yeah, there are a lot of people out there I know, and I, I would be one too if, if I'm listening to a show and listening to the radio. I don't always have time to call in and, and wait on hold and, and go on the air and talk, and sometimes I'll, I'll be able to formulate my thoughts better in just a quick text. So I think it's, it's good. We'll Hopefully we'll get a lot of interaction with it. But, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's awesome, and we're looking forward to seeing how this will uh, affect our show, both sports nightly, and like you said, Big Red Reaction. I think that's going to be huge for for big red reaction once once we get going with a season that people can not only call in but they can also text and we'll start reading those texts on the air yeah great stuff again 531 that's the area code 500 4686 if you want to send us a test text tonight go ahead so then you have it in your phone so 531 500 4686 that's our call in line for our woodhouse auto family Hotline or our U.S. cellular text line. Again, 531-500-4686. We're excited to be able to add that to uh, our little things to do here on Sports Island and for the Husker Sports Network. All right, coming up tonight, we continue our position breakdowns. When we come back, Tony Tuioti, the Husker defensive line coach, will join us. We'll talk about the Husker defensive line, and then we'll rank them out how they fit in the Big Ten West. That's coming up next. Welcome back, Sports Nightly Thursday night. Greg Sharp, Josh Hookeman with you. Tim Curran back in our broadcast studios. Tonight we continue on our position breakdowns with a look at the Husker defensive line. Tonight on Sports Nightly, it's the Husker football position breakdown. Stone gets the snap. Husker send a blitz. They throw down the flat. But Tater makes a catch. He's immediately thrown down. No gain. He'll lose a couple yards. Great play by DeAndre Thomas. That'll lose two. It'll be fourth down and ten. Tonight. McFarland in the backfield winning. Fourth and one from the 40. They turn. Give it off to McFarland. He gets stuffed and stopped short. He did not get the first down. Oh, the Huskers fired through there. Ben Stilley knocked him down, and the Huskers will take over on downs at the 40-yard line. What a great hit. Defensive line coach, Tony Tuioti. And here to talk about the Husker defensive line, Tony Tuioti, back for his second season with the Huskers on this staff. And, Coach, a lot of people are kind of pointing at the lack of experience in your room. But if I remember right, you played a lot of guys last year, and a lot of the guys that got some snaps for you are back for this football team. What's your overall feeling about the group that you have right now? Yeah, you know, we, we lost a lot of playing experience, uh, you know, with the, the Twins being gone and Darren Daniels being gone. But I'm really excited about this group. Uh, we did play a lot of guys, and we try to rotate as many guys as we could um, throughout the season. So we have some guys that are going to play for us this year that have taken a lot of reps. Uh, of course, and Ben Stilley and Darren Daniels, uh, Damon Downs, excuse me, and, and uh, uh, Deontay Thomas. So, those guys played a lot, and then the other thing too that was uh, that was really helpful was having the redshirt rule. So Ty Robinson was able to play some for us last year, get get his feet wet, and 
you know, also Casey Rogers. So uh, really excited about this new group of guys coming up, and they're hungry, they're eager to play. Ben Stilley, it seemed to me, played maybe his best football right toward the end of the season. What did you see from Ben, and what are your expectations for him? Uh, I got very high expectations for Ben. I think he's got high expectations for himself. Uh, he's very smart. He's like having a coach on the field. Um, and he's taking ownership uh, during this offseason, especially during this time here with this pandemic, to you know get the guys together, try to master the playbook, uh, doing a lot of player run activities as much as they can together. Um, but he's he's been doing a wonderful job, and we're going to need his leadership. And a lot of guys look up to him because he does all the things the right way. So I got a high expectations for him, and he knows he's got to carry a big load for us this year. You mentioned DeAndre Thomas. That's a guy that's been around the program for quite a while. He's played a lot of Big Ten football. That's, that's a guy that I think – is that, is that one of the guys you, you trust that when you put him out there he's going to do the right things? Yeah, no doubt. You know, with uh, DeAndre Thomas and, and Damian Daniels, like those guys played a lot for us. So I definitely have a lot of trust in those guys to come out and play for us. And, you know, DeAndre's awesome because he, he gives us some flexibility. Um, you know, it's not the – the biggest guy, but he plays big and he's tough, and you know he can play some end for us. And he's also got position flex, uh, position flex to play at the nose guard position for us. And I didn't play him much this season at the nose guard position, but I have done it in practice, and I have confidence that he can do that too as well for us. The next group, the next class of guys, was Casey Rogers and Tate Wildeman. How about those two, and how important are they now to your room? Well, they're really important, you know, especially coming into this season. Uh, you know, I told a lot of the guys when we were coming into spring ball that everybody's up and, you know, everybody has a chance to showcase what they got and show how they can help our team and we're going to need each and everybody to, to uh, contribute in some way. And, you know, I think Tate has done a phenomenal job during the off season, getting himself big, fast, strong. He looks great right now. Uh, Casey does too as well. You know, and Tate, you know, early on in his career when he got in here, um, you know, was looking at being a guy that can contribute early but then got injured. So, you know, he's been he's been a warrior. He's been battling through that, and I think he's uh, back to 100%. So I can't wait to see uh, him be able to come out and help us out this year because we're going to need his length. He's got good athleticism. And, uh, you know, for a guy that's as long as he is, he can give some offensive tackles some fits because he's got long leverage. And uh, for the first two practices we had in spring, I really liked what I saw out of him. And then in Casey Rogers, you know, he gives he gives us some position flex where he can play some end, and he's getting uh, bigger too as well, where he can play closer to the ball for us. So I really like both of those, both of them and their development and where they're coming so far. And they're so young; they're only going to be sophomores. So I'm excited for you know what they're going to be able to do for us here in, in uh, a few years to come too as well. Yeah, we're visiting with Husker defensive line coach Tony Tuioti here on Sports Nightly. Um, last year at this time, a lot of high thoughts and expectations for Keem Green. He got to camp a little bit late. You were able to use him for a couple of games but kept the red shirt on him. Give us a progress report on Keem and how big a factor can he be for the Huskers? Uh, you know, I've had conversations with Keem just talking about those specific points for him to come in and and be able to contribute for us right away uh, this season. And, you know, he needed that year last year, especially because he came so late to learn the playbook and be able to, you know, understand what we want to do up front and with his fundamental technique. But he did an awesome job in January getting himself in shape, 
Uh, I thought he had really good two days of practice before we were shut down because of the pandemic. And, um, you know, he looks good now here in in, uh, in summer workouts too right now. So we're going to need him. Uh, he's, he's a big athletic body that can play uh, defensive end and also play no start position for us, similar to, you know, what Carlos Davis was able to do for us too as well. So, um, you know, I love his size and his strength. So we're going to need that for sure. Coach, you had two guys that were you were able to keep a red shirt on last year as well as Keem, and that's Ty Robinson and Mosai Newsom. How about their progress as football players in this program and their ability to help the Huskers out this fall? Yeah, love Ty, love Mo. I mean, those two, they have such great great attitude, great demeanor. They're, they're team-first guys. They want to do whatever they can to help the program out. I know Ty Robinson came in. Uh, you know, with very high expectations to come and contribute early, and we've had a we had a conversation just in terms of big picture for him and how we can really maximize his opportunities here, and and you know probably using the red shirt to get his feet wet, and you know now he's he's ready to go. He looks great, and um, I'm really excited about Ty. Um, I think he's going to be uh, um, you know a very special player by the time he gets out of here. I know that's putting a lot on him right now, but. Um, he has that demeanor. He's got that want to. And, um, you know, he's doing everything he can right now to get himself in a position where he can he can take a lot of snaps for us uh, this upcoming season. I don't like to put a lot on him early and uh, have him go. And so he's a guy that's going to be able to do that for uh, multiple years for us here. So I'm really excited about him and his development and his growth so far. And then uh, Mosai Newsom, uh, I thought he did a great job last year helping out in the scout team and Every week, Coach Frost and Coach Held and all the offensive coaches would come to me and say, hey, Mosai is hard to block on that side. And uh, they're really excited about him. And, you know, he gives us some pass rush ability, too, as well. Um, he's getting himself bigger. He came in about 250, sitting about 285 right now, so he's put on some good weight. So they're young players that I'm really excited about. And, um, you know, if they continue to grow and develop, we should be okay here for the next few seasons up front. Well, I know all last fall uh, going into the recruiting, you knew you were losing a lot of experience, and so you went and found a couple of junior college linemen to kind of bolster that a little bit, and Jordan Riley and Phil Darius Payne. How about their their you know, adaptation into the program? Obviously, you had Jordan here for the spring. How about those two guys? I know Riley, Riley uh, creates a shadow. That's a big body. Yeah, Jordan is a really big body. Really, when you look at it, you got Jordan that's uh... – and about six six, he's sitting about three thirty five right now. When he came in, he was about three oh five, uh, and he looks great. He's working hard. You know, Coach Duvall does a great job down with the strength and conditioning program. And you know, I really like where Jordan's at physically. Very athletic for a big guy. Very similar to Ty Robinson. And uh, you know, those two guys are both six six, sitting about three. You know, Ty's anywhere between three twenty five and three thirty. And Jordan's about 330, 335. So, you know, looking at the roster from last year to this year, uh, we're longer and we're bigger than we were last year. And, and these guys are pretty athletic for their size. They just don't have the game experience, uh, you know, like the Twins brought to us for many years and, and Darren too as well. But, you know, they have the athletic ability, I think, you know, just getting a few games under their belt and, and being able to, you know, uh, <clears throat> deal with uh, – What's going to happen from game to game with them? I think they'll be good to go by the time we get in the conference play and all that stuff. But you know, we lose out on uh, those uh, those non-conference games now, so they got to be ready more than ever now. 
Again, busy with Tony Tuyoti, Husker defensive line coach here in our position breakdowns. Two high school players were given scholarships in your room, and that's Marquise Black and Nash Huttmacher. Give us the, the update on those two guys who've been here for just a short time. Yeah, I think everybody knows everything about Nash. I think he's probably one of the most popular guys on social media just with what him and his dad are able to do in the weight room and out hunting and fishing and all that stuff. But, you know, Nash is as blue-colored as it gets. Uh, he's great here. The guys love him. Uh, you know, I don't know if we have enough weights for him to lift here in the weight room. I think the other day, Coach Duvall had him squatting, and I don't know if there was any more room left on the barbell to add any more plates on there, but... I think by the time Nash leaves here as a senior, he's probably going to be the strongest guy we've ever had here. Um, and so he's great. Um, Marquise Black, very athletic. Um, he's somebody, too, as well, that I'm really excited about. He's somebody that, uh, you know, can win on the edge and then also be strong enough to be able to play in the run game and at the point of attack. So uh, really two, two young guys that are, uh, you know, that come in and see how they can help us this year. Uh, but interior guys, nonetheless, that, that we're really excited about having. I know Chris Walker is also a part of your room, and also you have some walk-ons. Every coach in, in Nebraska has walk-ons that help build depth, help guys work on the scout team a little bit, and uh, I'm sure that they help fill up your room as well. Yeah, you know, uh, you talk about guys that, that lead Nebraska football since they were babies, and it's great to have those type of kids. They remind me a lot of when I was – Back at my old school in Hawaii, I think there's something special about having local kids home and playing for the home team. And Chris Walker is, you know, he's he's back from his injury from last year, and he's uh, he's full go now. So it's great to see him up and running, and he's sitting anywhere between uh, about 300 pounds and put some good weight on him. And uh, he'd be somebody that I'd love to see him on the field and be able to help us out uh, with to as well. And then uh, we have also have Colton Peace, that's you know another walk on. Uh, football player for us that has done a great job, very smart, very athletic. And, um, you know, I'm really excited and, and happy that he's part of our group. Um, you know, and then we have some uh, another nose, nose guard and Ben Linkfielder who's been in the program for a while. And, you know, these guys are great. They do anything that, that you ask them to do. They're all about the team, and they all want to see the team have a lot of success. And, and uh, you know, you need those type of guys on your roster to be able to help. So, if we can get some out of Chris Walker, especially this year, that would be awesome. Well, Coach, we always appreciate the time and the rundown on your guys in your room. Keep keep this group healthy as you get through practice sessions, and let's all keep our fingers crossed we've got football here in a few months. We'll do, but I appreciate you. Stay safe. We're back on a sports nightly Thursday night. Greg Sharp, Josh Shokeman, Tim Curran back in our studios engineering this bus here tonight. Thanks again to Tony Tuioti, Husker defensive line coach, for spending some time with us here on Sports Nightly. All right, uh, before we get into the rankings, Josh, your thoughts about this defensive line, minus the Twins, who we've talked about for four years, and and, uh, Darian Daniels, who came in last year, made such a big impact. Yeah, the, you're right. There's th- those three were were big big losses for the Huskers, and I mean, it, they're not going to be easy to overcome. But uh, you know, it's such an important position on the defense. You know, it's probably overlooked a lot, especially in a three four system, because those guys don't make a ton of plays. They kind of are, you know, that front wave that are trying to free up the linebackers. You know, your outside linebackers are the ones that are rushing the quarterback and getting the sacks most often. And, um, you know, your middle linebackers are the ones probably making a lot of the tackles. So that it's very... It, 
important but probably you know underrated so it's it'll be key for the you know some guys to step up and fill those three guys that you stepped or that you mentioned earlier and one of the the obviously the lead one is Ben Stilley he's a senior and he's going to have to you know he's been good for the Huskers but he's going to have to take another step forward and be a leader on that defense not just on the defensive line but on, on that defense as a whole all right, I think this defensive line, I said this last night, I think it's going to be pretty good for Nebraska, not only this year but moving forward. Now, my, my rankings that are coming up here soon may not reflect that to a certain degree, but it doesn't mean I don't have confidence in this group because I think they're going to get better and better as the fall wears on. So, Josh, why don't you lead us off your top three as we rank out the D-lines in the Big Ten West? Yep. We were talking right before we went on that there's a lot of uh, attrition, a lot of guys that have left that were really good in the Big Ten West on that defensive line. But my number one, I am go with Wisconsin. Um, I think that they're the cream of the crop in the Big Ten West. And uh, I have, you know, they both have they have both Isaiah Loudermilk and Garrett Randback as seniors, a lot of depth behind those guys, too. So I think that they are, you know, I a little bit in a class of their own at the top. But then I have Purdue right behind them, and they probably aren't quite as good to me as the Badgers, but they have a lot of upside. They're probably their best player on that defensive line is George Karloftis. Uh, had a great freshman year last year back as a sophomore, and then Lorenzo Neal solid in the middle as well. And then I have Northwestern at three. Joe Gaziano is one of those guys that I mentioned that is gone, but um, they still have plenty of depth and experience, and I don't think that they're going to take too much of a step back. They usually have a solid defensive line as a whole, um, even without a, a star player like Gaziano as a part of it. So I have Wisconsin one, Purdue two, and Northwestern three. Okay. Tim, how about yourself? Mine are similar, but uh, I got Purdue number one. Karloftis and Lorenzo Neal are studs, and Wisconsin has a little bit more depth, but give me the star power over them any day. But Wisconsin, they are my number two. And then my number three, call me a homer, but I do have <laughs> Nebraska. Uh, I think they're sneaky, solid hmm. D-line. Yes, they lost wow. the Davis twins, but you also have Ben Stilley, but I'm getting excited to see, you know, what has Keen Green got in store and, and young guys like Ty Robinson and, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of question marks, technically speaking, with them because you, you at a certain point they have to prove it, but you know, I'm just I'm basically factoring in that they're going to be studs. So assuming that they are studs, and I think they are, <laughs> I think Nebraska is good enough to be number three. So just to recap, my three: number one Purdue, number two Wisconsin, and number three Nebraska. Okay, all right. Um, I'm 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 in line with Josh. I've got Wisconsin one, Purdue two, and I. But I've got Iowa in the three hole. Uh, Golston, Chauncey Golston's a really solid defensive lineman. I know they lost Epinesa and some of those other guys, but they usually have them stacked up in Iowa City. So the Hawkeyes make my third spot, but I match up with Josh at one and two with Wisconsin and Purdue one and two. All right, how about the absentee votes? <laughs> Tim, what do you have from Ben and from Austin? Well, I think uh, they were stealing from each other because uh, they line <laughs> up pretty much identically. Ben's got Wisconsin, Purdue, and Northwestern one through three, and so does Austin. Wisconsin, wow. Purdue, Northwestern. Okay. All right, Josh, back to you for four through seven. All right, very good. My number four, I have Iowa here. You mentioned them at three, Greg. They obviously lose A.J. Epinesa, which hurts, but Chauncey Golson uh, was great last season. We'll see how much of that was because of Epinesa, but I think that he's a, a really good player in his own right. So I have the Hawkeyes four. I have Nebraska at number five. Like Tim said, some unproven guys are going to have to step up. Ben Stilley, like I mentioned a little bit ago, he's the 
only guy that's really done it at a consistent level through a full season, but there are so many other names that, you know, you can mention and probably Ty Robinson's the one that I'm most excited about just seeing what, uh, what he's done in the weight room and then hearing what coach Tuioti said in that last segment. So I have Nebraska five, I have Minnesota six, lots of unknowns, especially at the defensive end spots. And then I have Illinois at seven because they lose all four of their defensive line starters. I don't really know what they have, you know, coming in, but I, I have to put them at number seven coming into the season. Okay. Tim? My number four, I got Northwestern. They should be okay. Joe Gaziano is going to be a huge loss for them. They're all-time sacks leader, but they got some veteran leadership they can lean on. Uh, then Iowa next at five. They're missing Epinesa, but they have uh, guys like Chauncey Golston who are going to step up to, to probably avoid a giant drop-off. And then at my number six, you got Minnesota. Only one returning starter coming back. Uh, that's uh, their nose tackle, Micah Drew Treadway. And so he's going to have a lot of burden on his shoulders. Then Illinois, they're dead last. They're my cellar dweller. They don't think they really have much to work with. So, unfortunately, the Illini and Lovey Smith's crew, uh, they are at the bottom of my D-line rankings. All right, very good. I go Northwestern in the four hole. Uh, I think I just flipped that with Josh, who had them. A couple guys had them at three and not four. So, I've got Northwestern at four. I've got Nebraska at five. And, and again, I, I think this could even be a smidge higher uh, as this season goes along. But I, got, I need to kind of see it a little bit as we move into this thing. Minnesota at six. They had more losses than I thought when I started this exercise a couple of hours ago. Uh, so I've got the Gophers at six. And I, I know Illinois doesn't have any starters back, but they were banged up a lot along that defensive line. So like Nebraska, a lot of their twos played a bunch a year ago. Calvin Avery's one of those guys that played a lot but wasn't considered a starter but is back. I don't know they're as bad as you guys are kind of making them. But, yeah, <laughs> even in this whole thing, they're still probably seventh in this whole thing as well for me. So to recap, I go Northwestern four, Nebraska five, Minnesota six, and Illinois at number seven. How about B&A? Yeah, the, the peanut gallery. Uh, yeah. Ben has uh, Iowa at four, Nebraska at five, Minnesota at six, Illinois seventh, and Austin yeah. virtually the same, but he has Iowa and Nebraska flip-flop. He's a little more optimistic on the Huskers. He's got them at four, the Hawkeyes at five, the Gophers at six, and the Illini dead last. Pretty much uh, the Unanimous. same as everyone else. <laughs> We're not really all that different for the most part. No. Um, you know, t- Tim, a little bit more aggressive on the Huskers, and that's fine. <laughs> That Kool-Aid tastes what good. I mean, that's okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, we're all not really far off as you go through the, the balance of that. All right, so here's what we have left. As we, This is our last position breakdown during the month of July. We still haven't done special teams, quarterbacks, and tight ends. Those are the three positions we have not yet touched on. We're getting to them. We will get to those uh, as we move through our next position breakdown. It'll be next Tuesday night. All right, what did you think? Where are we on, Roth? What do you think? Also, been a chance for me to uh, shamelessly plug our new phone number. This, again, goes for calls or texts, 531-500-4686, 531-500-4686. A bunch of people, and I mean a bunch of people, have been sending us tests, texts. That's great. We've been having fun replying to those throughout the uh, the hour if you want to jump on with us you can uh, send us your thoughts about the defensive line if you have something about that or you just want to say hey do i have the right number plugged into my phone so i can send instant texts to you guys about whatever topic you're talking about that so we'll review that take some calls and wrap up the hour next he's originally from new york but now calls the second city his home he prefers seeing a yellow card over an icing call. His choice in pizza is still up for debate, but his knowledge of sports spans from boxing to yachting. 
sponsored by Bathfitter, for the beautiful bath you've always wanted. Kickstart your bathroom remodel by visiting bathfitter.com today. Now, here's the worldly Teddy Greenstein of the Chicago Tribune. All right, man, I wake up, I'm having my, my coffee, and there's there's your byline and all kinds of breaking news. Well, I hope you saved something for us here. What Has anything changed in 12 hours? <laughs> well, I know when I was on furlough from the Tribune, you were getting all my stuff. I could not report anything in print, so uh, <laughs> everything was uh, was exclusive to, to Greg Sharp and Ben McLaughlin. Uh, now I did have to write some stuff for the paper, and I spoke to a good source uh, a couple days ago. And he laid out the current plan and he cautioned. He said, look, it's already changed since Monday. So I can't promise any of this is how it's going to be. But this is what we're looking at now. Ten games, three to five off weeks in case teams have to quarantine themselves, you know, and, and be off for a while. Uh, and front loading the, the divisional games. So East versus East and West versus West in those first, you know, probably essentially six games that might last over seven or eight weeks, and they're looking at September 5th to start. Uh, he also said there's been no talk of spring ball, and there's been no talk of some kind of bubble, which, uh, God bless my buddy Stuart Mandel at The Athletic, he's been talking, I think, about how to bubble college athletes. I think we all know that's not happening. Okay, so the the SEC is going to go late September. You still think September yeah. 5th? And the ACC is doing away with divisions. They're just going to get the top two teams. What about the divisions? Are they still going to hold in the Big Ten? Yeah, Greg, this has been one of the interesting aspects of this. Every league looks at it differently. I mean, the Big 12 is moving up. They're moving up to week zero. So they want to start earlier. Uh, the Big Ten, I mean, my guy clearly says – What's important to them is to have these extra weeks built in where they don't have to, you know, have every team play it. That's also smart from a TV perspective, right? I mean, if you can have teams play in 10 games but do it over 14 or even 15 weeks, if you can offer, you know, four or five Big Ten games a week, that would obviously be great. So I think that's the smartest philosophy. I don't know if the SEC is doing it its way because there are more outbreaks in the South right now and they just feel like they need more time to try to get it under control. Uh, but it is interesting that, you know, you've got the Ivy League that cancels, you've got the ACC that's going 11, Big Ten 10. I, I mean, they all have their different thoughts. And I hate to say, is this all just a total futile exercise? Is there going to be college football at all? But as my source said, if you don't at least plan for it, you got no chance. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. All right, Notre Dame wraps into the ACC this year. Are we reading too much into that? Is this a one-time only thing? You're pretty well connected with the Irish. Oh, I would think it's definitely one-time only. I mean, Notre Dame has this great situation. I've seen some people call it friends with benefits. I think that's a pretty good line. You know, Notre Dame gets the best of it because all of its other sports – you know, they don't have to concoct schedules for the tennis team and the women's basketball team and all that. So they've got this great league, the ACC, uh, for all of its other sports, which which makes it much easier. And Notre Dame fancies itself as an ACC-type school. They, they think they're sort of like, you know, Virginia and North Carolina and Wake Forest and a lot of these strong academic schools. And then they have this good situation in football where they play six ACC opponents every year. So that means, you know, often they'll get Clemson or... Florida State, uh, NC State, Carolina, pretty good teams. 
But then they also get to go out and play SC and Michigan and Michigan State and Purdue and Northwestern and teams like that. So, you know, if you're Notre Dame, you have a great situation. You, you get all this extra money from NBC for TV revenue. Why would you give that up? Uh, I don't think it's powerful enough to say, oh, well, now they get to play in the ACC championship game, so they play can play in a 13th game. I, I just don't think that's enough. Um, could there be a situation where they end up playing, you know, eight ACC games? I could certainly see that. But obviously they still want to play Navy and USC, and they want to play a school in Texas and a school on the East Coast because they feel like that helps their recruiting, and it really makes their alums happy. It's obviously a national school, and they want to, you know, they want their alums in San Antonio or Los Angeles to be able to see them every now and then. Yeah, no doubt. Teddy Greenstein with us from the Chicago Tribune. One of the big stories in your area was the passing yesterday of longtime Illinois coach Lou Henson. I don't know how much yeah. interaction you had with him, but it certainly seems like he was a pretty good gentleman, a pretty good, pretty good poster for that uh, for that program. That's right, Greg. That's a good word, gentlemen. And I ended up writing uh, a little column. I went uh, into the Wayback Machine. So in 1994, I was 21 years old and a reporter at Sports Illustrated. And I was heading out on my first road trip, my first assignment, to go around to, I think it was Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and do some interviews for our college basketball preview issue. So our editor at the time said, hey, when you go to Illinois, try to ask Lou about his son, Lou Jr. I said, oh, okay, well, what should I ask? He said, well, Lou Jr. died in a car accident two years ago. I said, okay. Uh, I didn't really know Lou at the time. I'd maybe interviewed him in group settings a couple times, so it, that felt like that was going to be pretty uncomfortable. I asked Lou about it, and he couldn't have been nicer. And he said, hey, do you want to jump in my car and we can drive to the gravesite? And I said, absolutely. And honestly, I don't remember much about that, but what I remember was we got back. We were in uh, the parking lot of the basketball arena, and he says, wait here for one second. And he runs inside to his office, and he comes back, and he's signing his book. And he ends up signing his book, uh, and he says, thank you for asking about Lou Jr. Um, and, you know, wish me the best of luck. And, and I just always remember that. One, it struck me how nice he was to me, and two, you know, folks who, who lose a child, um, I'm sure a lot don't want to talk about it, but some I know really do want to talk about it. And when it's that child's birthday, they want you to say, you know, happy birthday. It, it happened to my, my cousin passed away at a young age, and his parents really want to talk about their son. So I think it's a good reminder um, to people that, yeah, there are a lot of couples out there, even if they lose a child, they, they want that child to be remembered. Oh, good story. Teddy Greenstein again with us from the Chicago Tribune. All right, I need some help from you. I have been yeah. a Sports Illustrated subscriber probably mm. for 30-some years. I got a renewal yep. notice in the mail the other day, and usually it's a quick sign it, put the credit card on there, and send her back in. I'm struggling this time. I don't know whether I'm going to keep that. Am I, am I loony here? You and I didn't set this up before, so I don't no. think you know my story, but I mean – I became a sports writer because of Sports Illustrated. I really was not interested in reading To Kill a Mockingbird and Catcher in the Rye. And, you know, I, I used Cliff Notes to get me through uh, all those kind of lit classes. But I read S SI for pleasure, read it cover to cover, probably starting at maybe 13, 14, 15. And that's what made me love it. So fast forward to, you know, in the last few years, and I've had so many friends who've been laid off by Sports Illustrated. Uh, fortunately, my buddy Michael Rosenberg is still there. They've hired Pat Forty. 
Um, Tom Verducci is probably the best baseball writer who's ever lived. So it's yep. not completely without talent, but it's so stripped down. And uh, I hate what they've done with the website. So finally, I get the same card as you in the mail. And I've been a subscriber since at some point in the 80s. And um, yeah, I actually called and said, hi, are you, you know, is there going to be a discounted rate because there are fewer issues? And I think they said no. And then the next thing I know, I had just canceled kind of like that. Like I was actually, I think, ready to negotiate a little bit and maybe keep it. And the next thing I know, there's no SI. And it really actually was a dilemma for me as well. Like, do you quote unquote punish the current owners who have completely ruined the magazine by not subscribing? Or are you then still hurting your colleagues who rely on subscriptions to survive? It's a very tough call. All I know is I no longer subscribe and uh, there's so much other stuff to read out there. The Athletic, ESPN, a, a million publications. So I can't say I miss it, but uh, I did it with some sadness. Yeah, I, I, it's probably been 30-plus years. I remember growing up, and my buddies and I would argue over whether that was the better thing or the sporting news. They loved the sporting news. It gave you a lot of box scores and a lot of statistical information. Right. I wanted the profile pieces. I wanted exactly. to learn about these people, and that's what drew me to Sports Illustrated. Plus, the photography was fantastic. Yes. But I'm with you. I mean, one, they stripped down how many issues they're doing per year, and they didn't give you a yep. break in the raid, so you're paying more for right. us. And then now I, I don't know half the writers when I open up a, a magazine so i've struggled with yeah. it you probably just sealed it for me right there yeah and they give it away for free on si.com yeah so when i want to read tom verducci or pat 40 it's right there so you know their management has been terrible uh i can't say much for our management but uh we do need to all try to support each other because whew, print yeah. journalism man not exactly going so well all right good stuff other than tracking this hour by hour you got anything else you're cooking up right now not a ton, man. I'm certainly going to be excited for the PGA Championship next week, yeah. but I think more as a as a fan than than as a writer. And uh, yeah, just keeping one eye on the Cubs, one one eye on the White Sox. Obviously, NBA's get started, uh, Blackhawks and all that. But I think work wise, it's going to be college football, man. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in, in talking to some schools about like what it's going to take just to conduct a practice. You know, all that you're going to have to do just to have a full contact practice, yeah. let alone when you get to the game. So we'll see if I can pull that story, pull off that story next week. Very good. We'll look forward to hearing from you next week. Thanks, Teddy. Thanks, Greg. There he is, Teddy Greenstein. We'll continue our preseason top 25, team number 17, straight ahead. We're back, Sports Nightly, here on a Thursday night. Greg Sharp, Josh Hill, come in with you. Tim Curran keeping an eye on the scoreboards for us tonight as well. Time for us to continue on our preseason top 25 tonight, number 17. It's the Sports Nightly preseason top 25 tonight. Javante Williams to the left of Howe. He'll send him out into the flat right side. Howe looking, standing tall, lets it go, man there. Touchdown! Touchdown, Carolina! Daz Newsom tiptoes in the right side of the end zone for six. Number 17, North Carolina Tar Heels. And here to talk about the Tar Heels, Jones Angel, the play-by-play -play man for North Carolina. And Jones, they talk about uh, sometimes in life you get second chances for Mac Brown, a second chance to come back to Carolina and be the head coach. And boy, did it look like it worked well last year. What was your experience being around Coach Brown last year? 
Well, first of all, Greg, thanks so much for having me on and, and looking forward to talking with you about Carolina football. And you're right, it, it was a terrific first season, and we, I've been calling it Mac Brown 2.0 here in uh, <laughs> Chapel Hill. And, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because I think maybe the farther away from Chapel Hill you were when the Mac Brown hire was announced, probably the more questions you had. And you went, wow, really? Is that something that makes sense? Um, but I think closer to the program, the needs that Carolina felt that it needed to fulfill and the things that it felt like it needed to improve on, Mac Brown was the perfect fit to help those needs and improve in those areas. And so I think that's why you saw a, a successful first year is that Mac Brown, and I understand fully what he did at Texas. Uh, before I even say this, uh, let me just preface it with that. I understand fully, you know, national champion, uh, a contender for the championship almost every single season. Um, and I get what Texas football is. But I think Mac Brown and Carolina fit together. Um, he, he understands this university. I think he understands some of the unique challenges that you may have here. I think he understands uh, the relationship with the, the university side of things with the athletic department. I think he understands the town of Chapel Hill. Um, and I think that knowledge that he built up from his first time here has helped him be successful quickly in, in his second tenure and so uh, he immediately was able to fix some of the things Carolina needed that Carolina needed to really foster better relationships particularly in the state of North Carolina recruiting wise Mac Brown is as good at that as anybody any head coach in the country um, Carolina needed to get a shot of energy and, and improve some relationships with with its fan base and I think it immediately did that with Mac Brown's return. Um, he put together a terrific staff. Um, he, I think, defined the roles very clearly within the, the structure of Carolina football. And I mean all the way down from the person who cleans the, the football center at the end of the day to, to the coordinators on the offensive and defensive side. Everybody knew what their role was, why their role was important, and how it helped Carolina win. And so, all those things put together, uh, I think, added up to a successful first year. Carolina has recruited well since Coach Brown has been here. They, they think they'll be, uh, assuming we have a season, and we certainly hope we do, um, that they will have a solid year this year and, and feel like they're really building a foundation to be good for a long time. Well, we, we learned a long time ago with Coach Brown that that personality is infectious and it carries yeah. through a lot of things, and I think we saw that last year. Jones, for our audience, tell, tell us how good Sam Howe was last year as a freshman and how good do you think he can be? He was terrific uh, his first year, and I think it all started with what Sam did away from the football field. And I know you hear these type of things when, when you're talking about athletes, but I think it was absolutely true in Sam's case that he took care of all the things you have to take care of that help you then be successful on the field. And by that I mean – you know, he put in the extra time in the film room. He gained the respect of the older players on the team with his work ethic. He was in a, a battle for uh, the starting quarterback position as a true freshman with some older guys, you know, in the preseason last year, and he did all the right things and earned that job. And so when, I, when he started doing all of those things correctly – 
and, you know, got enough rest, ate correctly, took care of his body, paid attention in the weight room, all those, they took care of his academics. All those things um, allowed him to, to then be more successful on the field itself. And, and then when you do all those things right, that's when you start seeing the arm talent and his ability to run and uh, just all the different things that allow you to be a successful quarterback. And, and in addition to that, I think Sam Howe just has whatever that mythical it factor is. He, he to me, has it. He, he wants the ball in big situations. He isn't afraid to make big throws. He isn't afraid to have the ball down four with 90 seconds left. Um, he seems to be that guy and seems to thrive. He didn't have 100% success in that area last year. Carolina was in a ton of close games. They won some, they lost some. But it wasn't because the, the moment was too big for Sam Howe. And so when you add all those things together and you throw for you know more than 3,600 yards and 38 touchdowns compared to just seven interceptions, as a true freshman, uh, that, that's pretty darn good. So uh, Carolina feels very excited about, about the young man to have in that quarterback spot. It also helps to have weapons around a quarterback, and Carolina has that. 1,000-yard rushers, 1,000-yard receivers. Tell us a little bit about the offense. Yeah, I think that's Carolina's strength for sure is is the skill position. And and they do have two 1,000-yard receivers returning in De'Ami Brown and Daz Newsome, those guys. Uh, De'Ami had 1,034 yards, Daz with 1,018. They combined for 22 touchdowns and more than 120 catches a year ago. And so when you have a guy on the outside in Brown who is as good as anybody in this conference uh, at taking the top off, you know, that, that double-move type of receiver that can get you a 70-yard bomb in the blink of an eye and help keep the the defense a little bit looser and a little bit more honest because they know that that threat is always there. Um, He's really good at that. Newsom is is a smaller receiver, a slot guy, uh, but he fills that role perfectly where where he can just find spaces to get open and and to credit both of those young men you know they really took steps forward yeah you had seen flashes from them both of them in their in their career up to last year but there had also been some things they really need to improve on Newsom for example you know had a a couple of key drops and and had some balls that he should have caught that that he did not he cleaned that up uh, terrifically um, last season. And so when you have two veteran guys, in addition to some other really good players at that receiver spot, Bo Corrales, Toe Groves, Antoine Green, all guys who have played for Carolina in the past, plus some really exciting young players too at that wide receiver position, I think the Tar Heels feel as good about that spot as any position on their team. And then you can also talk running backs too because they've got a 1,000-yard rusher in Michael Carter and Javante Williams who rushed for more than 900 yards uh, last season. Those two guys are, are both back as well. Um, really powerful back in Javante Williams, hard to tackle. Michael Carter's a little bit uh, more uh, based on speed, can get out there on the corner, can get into space, and is really tough to tackle. But they're, they're a really impressive one-two punch. And so when you have that kind of depth and talent level at those two spots, it, it certainly makes life easier for your quarterback, to be sure. Yeah, I'm visiting with Jones Angel, the play-by-play man for North Carolina. We have the Tar Heels at number 17 in our preseason top 25. Last year, Jones, 49th in the country in total defense, with a lot of guys back, particularly in the back half of that defense. How good can that group be, do you think? Yeah, Carolina took a big step forward last year defensively. I think that was one area uh, where they've really struggled uh, over the last several 
years. And I'm going to go all the way back to when Mac Brown was here the first time. And near the end of his first tenure in 1996, 1997, when, when Carolina was a pretty consistent top 10 team for those back-to-back seasons, it was really based on, on what the Tar Heels were able to do on the defensive side of the ball. They just had some absolute studs uh, on that side, guys who were terrific college players, guys who went on to big-time uh, pro careers as well. And, and that's where they really built the success of their team. In the, quite honestly, 20 years since, um, Carolina's defense has had some good years and some bad years, but in general, just not as good as the Tar Heels needed that side of the ball to be. And even during Larry Fedora's tenure, and Coach Fedora did a terrific job here in Chapel Hill. He is a brilliant offensive mind. You know, Carolina really did some nice things, particularly offensively when he was here. Um, but the Tar Heels just were never where they wanted to be defensively. So I think they took a big step forward last year in trying to start to gain some of that consistency, start to try to get a little closer to where they want to be. I think Jay Bateman is an elite defensive coordinator. He had a terrific first season at Carolina. Um, the, the big question mark, I think, is going to be up front. They lost their best two guys on the defensive line, Jason Strobridge and uh, Aaron Crawford, two uh, veteran players. Strobridge was drafted as well by the Miami Dolphins. So two guys who are pretty good football players at the college level and uh, were really the, the stalwarts up front. That will be a big area Carolina needs to improve on. But the next two levels, I think the heels feel pretty good. Good. You know, they went into last year not knowing what they had at linebacker, and then all of a sudden uh, they found Jeremiah Gimmel and Chaz Surratt. Surratt, a terrific story, who was a quarterback initially at Carolina, made the very unusual move from uh, quarterback to linebacker and then had an all-conference type of season. He's on all the watch lists leading into this year on a national level. And then in the secondary, Carolina was young and thin last year due to some injuries. Uh, they feel much better where they are right now on the backside. They, they've got a couple transfers who are now eligible. They're more healthy than they were a year ago. Um, and they were forced to play some young guys that now have some experience. So that all of a sudden went from an area that was a little inconsistent a season ago to one that now they feel like they have a whole lot of competition in. So um, if they can figure out a, a way with some young guys and, and some guys will be asked to take a step forward to get some quality production on that defensive line, uh, I think Carolina's defense can be better this season for sure. Well, Jones, we believe in the Tar Heels. I think you do as well. Let's hope now we just get some football games to be played here in September and October and see how good this group can be. We certainly appreciate it and have some great calls here this fall. Thanks so much for having me on, and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Joan Jones Angel, the play-by-play man for North Carolina, joining us on our Sports Nightly Hotline, brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto Family, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. There are always a, always a couple of teams, Josh, in the offseason that get a lot of love. Carolina's kind of this year's version of that. They're getting a lot of love. Why do we like them, do you think? Well, there's a, a few reasons. One is the talent that they bring back, and you heard Jones go on and on about Sam Howell, who had a tremendous freshman season, and you know there's reasons why he's you know so um, I don't know, projected to have such a great season. But then you know you look at what the the weapons that he has around him too, and Diami Brown and Daz Newsom, especially at the wide receiver spot, guys that he's throwing to. That's that's obviously a lot of reason for optimism. I think one thing too, you look at the season that they had last year. They were seven and six, so they lose six games. But those six games, the the biggest defeat that they took was by seven points. 
And I, you know, they were in basically every single game that they played. So, and they ended the season with three straight wins, you know, and, and Mac Brown, um, you know, he's, you know, kind of getting things going there. So I, and he's obviously proven as a head coach. I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. I don't, you know, I, obviously, as Jones said, there's the defense has always been kind of the one thing that has needed to be there when, whenever there's been a lot of um, hype around a North Carolina football team, it's been that defense that has kind of let them down. So we'll see if that can change this year. I, I, you know, I think that there's, they have a good amount of guys returning on that side of the ball. We'll see what happens, but I, I think that we're, you know, I, I have reason to believe that we're, you know, we have a lot of uh, reason to have them here in the top 20. You know, they jumped. He really got her going early last year. They they beat South Carolina in their opener. Then they go beat Miami. Uh, they stumbled to Wake Forest. And then they had that game against Clemson late September where he went for two to try to beat them. And I'm mm-hmm. glad he did. I, I think that was a – they lose 21-20. to 20. He could have tied it and gone overtime. But when you're, you're the inferior team, and I think he knew they were, compared to Clemson at this point in time, go for it. I, I was so glad. I remember wa- I remember where I was watching that going, come on. Because <laughs> I was really pulling for him to get it done. I just couldn't quite get it done. Exactly, yeah. I, I remember exactly where I was watching that game too, and I'm right there with you. And, and I mean, think about if they had pulled that game off, how much of oh. a shot in the arm that would have been. It could have completely changed their season. Because like you said, that was in late September, game five of the season. They still had some big games left, and – they ended up losing a couple of overtime games after that. Virginia Tech and Pittsburgh were overtime losses. So I think that, yeah, that, that was a huge moment in that season. But it's also, you know, so many guys are back on this North Carolina mm-hmm. team that, you know, that I think that that's a good learning experience. And I I think that they're going to have a, a good year. And we'll see, we'll see how it goes for the Tar Heels. Would have changed Clemson season two. (laughs) I don't think they make the playoffs with that loss because that league was perceived to be really weak. But, boy, two 1,000-yard receivers back, a 1,000-yard rusher back, quarterback who was dynamic last year as a freshman. Yeah, I mean, I can see why they're kind of one of the it teams in college football going into 2020. Welcome back, Sports on a Thursday night. Greg Sharp, Josh Hill, coming with you. Tim Curran back in our broadcast studios. Each month, we have a little podcast called The Conversation with the Cooks, where Lauren Cook sits down with her dad, Nebraska volleyball coach John Cook. In this episode, which is going to hit podcast services tomorrow, they talked about, obviously, any update on the upcoming season, but also talked about some of the new additions to the Husker roster. Let's give it a listen. Okay, so... You said big, just Big Ten schedule only. That is 100% certain. Yeah. So what we're doing is we propose a 20-match schedule. It's Big Ten conference only. And probably what's going to happen is, again, this isn't for sure yet, but I think you'll go. a team will go and you'll play two matches back-to-back on the same weekend. So, for example, Nebraska would travel to Penn State and we would play them a Friday night and we play them a Saturday night and then come home. Okay. So the, the thinking behind that is you've got two teams, one spot, same refs and they, and everything's controlled. The, uh, women's senior women's administrators did propose a pod schedule, which you would, four teams would go to a spot. The problem is what if one team tests positive and has an outbreak, then you potentially could sideline four teams. So now that's why we've gone to just playing two matches. It, it simplifies travel. And, of course, the schedule they'll build will 
eliminate as many long trips as possible. But, you know, Nebraska's and Rutgers are the two most challenging teams travel-wise because we're on the edges of the Big Ten Conference. And so we're going to have to fly some. They want, they want to try to eliminate all, as many flights as they can and just bus. So the Northwesterns, Illinois, Purdue's, Indiana's, Michigan's, those guys, it's all easy for them to bus to almost everywhere. But, of course, the outliers are Nebraska and Rutgers. So, so you're still going to have to charter. <clears throat> yes. They won't make you fly commercial. You'll still be able no, to charter, no, correct? We'll, we'll charter. Okay. And that schedule still isn't fair because you may have to play Penn State twice at their home, but they may never come here, correct? Correct. Okay. So it's it's not going to be a fair schedule. So we just we already know that. So it's whatever they come up with. And the other thing that we try to do to point out is we we have great ratings on Wednesday nights. So is there a way, and, and I, I explained, you know, how they could do it. So let's say Nebraska's playing Penn State. So we pull out one match goes Wednesday and one match goes Saturday. And, and maybe, so you just pull two out from the weekend, put it on a Wednesday, Saturday. But wouldn't the girls miss more school then? No, it, it would be normal Wednesday, Saturday week. But it would just, oh. be, so we'd have one match of the week on a Wednesday night. Okay. So just think you would have seven sites. We have 14 teams. So you'd have seven sites going. Well, one of those sites would actually, instead of going Friday, Saturday, would go Wednesday, Saturday. And that way you could have a, a Wednesday night match because the Big Ten owns Wednesday night. We have great ratings. We want to continue to keep that uh, kind of as a, a Wednesday. You know, it's just like Sunday nights is Yellowstone. Um, and Sunday night football. <laughs> yeah, Sunday night football. But right now it's Yellowstone. Okay. And uh, so, you know, you wait for that. Well, I think people wait for Wednesday night volleyball. So we want to continue to keep that and keep that in people's minds and not lose the advantage that we've built for Wednesday nights. There you go. A little snippet of the conversations with the Cooks. Again, it will drop tomorrow. You can listen to any of your podcast services to hear that. Once a month, conversation with the Cook, some interesting stuff there, him about talking about having a kind of a feature match on Wednesday nights. That's, that's been pretty popular, and I think, I think he's right on the money to try to do that each and every week during the volleyball season. We'll see what happens with that. All right, uh, Josh, want your thoughts about something I just saw that passed uh, over the wire a little bit ago, that Major League Baseball and the Players Association have agreed to go with seven-inning doubleheaders beginning August 1st, so that's this weekend. So if you have to make up a game now in Major League Baseball for the 2020 season, it's seven-inning games. I don't quite get this. Uh, I mean, you're there. They're big league players. You've got 30-man rosters right now. I don't understand the need to do this. Right, I don't really get it either. I it, it's I know that we're in a, a unprecedented situation, you know, trying to squeeze a bunch of games in and not really knowing, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and all that, but I I just don't understand why this is the way to go. Maybe on days that there's double headers, expand the roster, be able to bring up a couple extra pitchers or something like that just for the the double header day. I I feel like there should be rules like that in place. Like I I just don't understand what the thinking is here because like you said, they're major league players. They're getting paid to play nine inning games. We've already had the extra runner on second base and extra innings rule added so that we don't have or in theory don't have as long of extra inning games but 
this just seems like a step going like way too far and unnecessary, really. I, I get it. Like they want to, I think that the reasoning for major league baseball is they want to be able to get in as many of the 60 games as they possibly can. And so already with the schedules being thrown around, they want to, they know they're going to have to start playing double headers here and there. And to be able to do that, I guess they think that it's going to be too hard on players and teams to, have to play full nine inning doubleheaders, I guess. I just, I don't know. I, I It's not like it's going to be that much more of a strain. You're already, like you said, they're already playing in that spot that day anyway, and then maybe traveling to another spot later. Like what's an extra hour of, of baseball? It doesn't really make sense I, to me. I agree. And we're already playing a hundred fewer games on the year. <laughs> right. So, I mean, and I know we're doing this. There are not many off days. I, I get that. And, but this is Major League Baseball, and you and they've ex- expanded the rosters. If they want to just leave the rosters at 30 for the year, do that. That's fine. Right. I don't think anybody cares if it cuts down to 25 eventually or 26 or whatever. Leave it at 30. That's okay. But I, this just doesn't make any sense to me. I, plus, if, if I'm a television partner, I'm losing commercial breaks when you go to this, right? That's a great point. I mean, their yeah, television partners point. go, wait, we sell nine-inning games, oh, and now you're taking, yeah. you're taking a couple of innings away from us on these doubleheaders. We're already short-shifted as it is, and now you're taking innings away. I, I don't get it. Um, I'll be honest, and I think you're different on this. That's, that's fine. I kind of like the runner at second base thing. I do. I- yeah, I know. I heard you last night with Lane, obviously, talking about that. And both of you guys have, have thought it has been pretty cool. And I'm not 100% on board. I don't think that it should be a rule going forward. I'm okay with it for this season. Like, it's a rule that I'm able to be like, okay, like, it's fine for this season. I just don't know if I can get on board with it for, you know, all the years to come for Major League Baseball. It just, it's, to me, it's too big of a change. But... I mean, it very well might be going in that direction. We'll see. Yeah. Last night I watched the Dodgers and Astros. They played, yep. ended up playing 13 innings. Neither team attempted a bunt. And you would think, runner at second, sack to third, sack fly, you got your run, you might win the game right there. And nobody bunted well, the entire – in the 10th, 11th, 12th, or 13th innings. Right. I, I get it as the away team, why that's your strategy not to bunt. You want to get as you know as many runs as you can. But as the home team, when you can walk it off with just one run and you s- successfully sacrifice that guy to third base with one out, that pressure is on the yep. pitcher and catcher and everybody in the field, the infield's yep. playing in. There's so much pressure on that team when you have a runner on third base, one out, and that's the winning run. So, I yeah, <laughs> it's, it's funny to see that strategy. It's been the strategy – um, in baseball, just in general, not bunting guys over, but yeah. to see it in that situation in extra innings for, you know, all the way through the 13th to not have a, any guys bunting in that situation. I, it's interesting to see. That's for sure. I, I get it. The new way of thinking in baseball is bun is just giving away an out. You already got the guy in scoring position. A base hit should score him anyway. So what, why are you giving away an out? I, I get it. But two sacrifices could get you a run. A sack mm-hmm. bunt, a sack fly, get your run. Or a sack bunt, wild pitch. There's so many ways to get a guy home from third. And know. win the game. Well, and win the game. Particularly, you're right, as you said, as if you're the home team. All right, need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have our Flicks Pick segment. That's next. No sports on this weekend? We've got you covered. I know everything about film. I've seen over 240 of them. Time now for Sports Nightly Flicks Picks. And Action! All right, time to see what we've been viewing here in the last several days. Josh, let's start with you. 
All right, very good. I, I have a trailer for this. It's actually a documentary put out by Netflix, and it's called Athlete A. And before I talk about it, here's a little bit of a tease for that. I just wanted to call you. I am very nervous talking to you about it, but I think it would help bring justice to the people who have been affected by USA Gymnastics and their policies. This was the most explosive story in several years, yet it was coming out of a small little newsroom. Larry Nasser had been the team doctor for USA Gymnastics Women's Program for 29 years when we got these allegations about him. I was like, does he do this to you? She said, yeah, like he does it to me too. And I said, we need to call the authorities. Steve Penny, he said, no, 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 USA Gymnastics will take care of calling the police. USA Gymnastics negotiating with Larry agreed to lie to people and that shows a cover-up. So this is, like I said, a documentary um, put out by Netflix and it it focuses on Maggie Nichols, who was a gymnast who was um, trying to make Team USA and was, you know, training with Team USA, didn't make the Olympics, but she was the first or one of the first to come out and um, talk about the sexual assault by Larry Nassar, who, of course, you know, has been gone through his trial, but the, there was focus on that, but really the bigger part of this documentary was talking about USA Gymnastics and how they basically covered it up for multiple years. And they didn't, you know, just deny it. They basically, they, they defended Larry Nasser. They tried to hide the fact and they told all the gymnasts that what they were saying would be taken care of and it wasn't. And so I, it was an interesting deep dive into that story and it was really uh, honestly hard to watch, but it was, it was good. It held my attention for sure. Yeah. The Corollas I think are going to get dragged into this thing as well as they move, continue Mm -hmm. to move through this. All right, Tim, what's on your plate? Uh, I caught uh, Dr. Sleep a little bit ago, watched it on HBO. It's actually the sequel to the shining, which is originally why I avoided it. I said sequel to the shining. No, thanks. Turns out, it's actually great, and I think it actually works better as a drama. It's, it technically is a, a horror film, uh, but it actually does work as kind of a really deeply touching uh, drama as well. It stars Ewan McGregor of the Star Wars prequels fame. Uh, he does an excellent job, and it's, it's actually really, really good stuff. I'd definitely recommend, recommend that, especially if you've got HBO. It should be uh, on demand there. Very good. Well, I'll continue kind of the deep, dark st- uh, stuff with tonight. Uh, I popped on Netflix the other day. And the movie Spotlight popped up. It was an Academy Award-winning uh, movie. Here's the trailer. I know there's things you cannot tell me. But I also know there's a story here, and I think everybody will hear about it. Do you think your paper has the resources to take that on? I do. Do you? The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. We haven't committed any long-term investigative resources to the case. No, we haven't. And that's the kind of thing your team would do. Spotlight. Guys, listen. Everybody's going to be interested in this. It's about the Boston Globe who did the the, the, the tough story about the, the abuses in the Catholic Church with priests toward young adults. Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Lee Schreiber. Terrific cast. Stanley to do. Stanley Tucci, uh, great cast, really well written, some incredibly intense acting scenes. I really enjoyed the acting. The topic was difficult to, to stomach at times, but it's really, really well done. So Spotlight's what I caught up with over the uh, over the week. All right, good stuff there. There's our Flix Pick segment for this week.
Tomorrow night, we'll continue our round the Big Ten. We'll go check out what's happening at Rutgers and then our top 25 entry as well, number 16. Another hour of Sports Alley coming up here.